This is our last teaching on the year of biblical literacy, which is pretty cool. Um, I remember when I began mapping out this year, it was just so overwhelming. I have a calendar in my office and just mapping out all the series that we we're going to do. I'm like, oh my gosh, man, this I'll never get through this year. And here we are. So, But it's been a great year going through the Bible together, doing the Read Scripture app, just hearing the story of God, maybe some of us for the first time, and then also on Sunday morning, just talking about parts of the Bible that are difficult for us, parts of the Bible. What does this mean? And so it's been such an adventure to um, live with you guys uh, going through the year of biblical literacy. And so this morning we come to our last teaching on the moral vision of the New Testament. So let's read from Paul and then we'll get into, we'll get into our teaching. So Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, family of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now jump down to verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulations. Be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, don't ever avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it has been written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, then, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So we've been talking for the last few weeks on the moral vision of the New Testament, right? And as we've been saying, you know, sometimes when we think about those words, moral vision, uh, we think about rules, we think about regulations, we think about maybe a, you know, moral straitjacket. But as we read the Bible, we actually find that the moral vision of the Bible comes out of a story. 
And it's a story about God's redemption. Yes, of course, it does have laws, it does have commands, it does have statutes, principles, and it has wisdom for our life. But more than anything else, it's a story. It's a story from God's perspective about what has gone wrong with the world. God's heart towards the world and God's plan to ultimately redeem the world and make heaven and earth one again through the work of his anointed king and rescuer, Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the moral vision of the New Testament or the moral vision of scripture, it's about how we live in light of that story. It's about how we live in a way that is consistent with this story, but I like putting it this way. It's specifically how our lives continue to tell the story of God. And this is an incredible perspective to have, that the Bible isn't just a story that's been written and you get to read it and like, oh, isn't that nice and put it back, but you get to join the story. And like as growing up as a kid, I don't know like if you were into you know, Superman or Batman or Batgirl or, you know, you read Lord of the Rings or you read any of these like fantastic tales of heroes and adventure and all this stuff. But usually the, the you know, marketing banked on the fact that every kid who read these stories, watched these movies, wanted to partake in the story, right? And so that's why they always would sell costumes, right? The new movie Ninja Turtles. Remember when Ninja Turtles came out? I love the first Ninja Turtles. It still holds up um, for some. Um, But, you know, like they they sold shells for kids to wear. And we looked so stupid, right? But the whole idea was part of the story, right? And we got got, like to create our own story uh, in our own day-to-day living with our friends. But all of that is great to do and to imagine as a child. But here's a fact. God is the one that controls the narrative of the world, and he has actually invited us to partake in that story. This is incredible. It's not just a fantasy. It's not just a pipe dream. It's reality that we get to partake in the story of God, God's story to redeem, God's story to heal this broken, screwed-up world. We get to be a part of that story, and we get to partake in that story. And that's what the moral vision of the New Testament is really about. It's about joining God in his work. But if I could sum up the moral vision of the Bible in one word, it would be love. It was so funny because I've been studying this all week long, and I woke up this morning. We had a rough night last night. Uh, Evelyn barfed three times. That was fun. Um, And, you know, as I said, it's been a long week. And I've been wrestling with this, and I woke up this morning, like, with a start. And it was like, the moral vision of the New Testament is love. It's like, I've been studying this all week, but it's like, there it is, in a word. It was just so weird to wake up and just be like, oh, it's love. How simple is that? And so I asked you, right, when you were saying hello to one another, what is love? And some of you were like, baby, don't hurt me no more, right? That's just where you jumped to, right? It was just triggered. And I did that on purpose, right, because it's just fun. So Paul's teaching that we've been talking about, right, he's been talking about how those who understand the story of God are invited into this transformation now, that that's what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about getting your sins forgiven and just going to heaven when you die and just living however you want until then. It's about joining God in his story, and that is about transformation, 
And so Paul says in order to do that, we have to stop being conformed to this world. We have to stop just doing what everyone does. And we read about that this morning, right? What does our world, what does our culture do? We repay evil for evil. We get back at one another. We esteem ourselves higher than others. Paul says, no more, none of that. That is the way that the world, that is the way that just, our, you know, that's the MO of human nature. No longer. You've been called into a new humanity and a new family, but this takes transformation. This takes exercise. This takes discipline to work out and discover together who God has called us to be. And this takes every part of our being. So that's why Paul says, present your body. Because that's every day. That's the in and out aspects of your life, right? It's the whole of you. It's life at its best. It's life at its hardest. It's your identity, your sexuality, your relationships, your career, your present, your past, and your future. Paul says God wants to transform all of that so that you would operate in this new identity, this new humanity. But the end of all of this, where we are going, is love, Love is the completion, it's the fulfillment of all things, for God himself is love. And that's where we're headed, to be like God, to be Christ-like, to be his children. And, and John talks about this in his first epistle. Remember, he tells us that when we love one another, the love of God is made perfect. Now that word, Paul uses that same word here. It's the word teleos in Greek. And it's this idea of wholeness or perfection. And this is a beautiful thing that what John specifically is saying in his epistle is that when you and I love one another like God has loved us, we actually complete the circuit of God's love. So Step back for a second. God sent his son into the world. This was the, the, the culmination of the love of God, the apex of the love of God. This is it. He sent his son into the world to redeem the world and to transform us to be children of God. And so that when we love like God loves, God's love completes the circuit for which God sent it out to do. That's a beautiful picture. And that's a beautiful picture of what it means to join God, to be a participant in, in, in the nature of God, in the work of God, in the redemption of God. And every one of us are invited into this. This is a beautiful thing that we've been talking about of Paul and his ministry. It's inclusive, right? Everyone can join. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. You're, you are welcome to the table to begin this work of transformation, and to join God in his work of redemption, to seek out this end goal of love. See, this is the evidence of the life of God and our transformation. It's love. Love is the goal. It's the teleos, the perfect will that we are growing into. For we have been re reborn into the family of the God who is love by the great display of God's giving and forgiving love in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again for our sakes. So here is Paul's uh, invitation in a nutshell. Give yourself to be transformed into the image of our God of forgiving and giving love. You know, we've been talking about, like, apprenticeship to Jesus, right? Like, the rest of your life, what does it look like to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did? I would add to that, add to this, love. 
Love is the greatest commandment. Make your life about learning to love like God loves, being transformed into the image of our God of giving and forgiving love. So what is love? Don't do it. So our culture talks of love constantly, right? Like we're obsessed with love and talk of love. You see it posted all over. You hear it talked about constantly from like, like it, radio, podcasts, movies, articles, bumper stickers and coffee shops on, you know, um, community boards and Whole Foods, right? It's everywhere. You know, what's really interesting to notice is love, though, is rarely defined for us. And so what is love is actually a legitimate question. What is love? And many times when asked, people actually can't define it. Love is love. That is like the slogan of Western culture. Love is love. But you know what? That actually doesn't tell us anything about love. But, it, but it's something that we, we say, love, oh, love is love is love. Or some might make a joke out of this, right? Quote some lines from the famous song, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Or maybe we just do this because, you know, we actually can't define it. We're like, oh, we just make a joke out of it. What is love? Oh, baby, don't hurt me, right? Just kind of sidestep that one. A little red herring for you. People often say this, well, I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it, which doesn't leave a whole lot of confidence. I can't define it, but I know what it is when I see it. So with our cultural definitions of love, it's probably rather strange to open up the Bible and see that Paul commands certain emotions of people. Let love be genuine. Let your feelings be genuine. How do you do that, right? Like, really working on this one right now, you know? Like, really loving you with all my feelings right now. Let love be sincere. How can you command someone to love sincerely? Hey, hey, love sincerely. Like, okay, yeah, let me just jump into the gym real quick and, you know, like, pump that out. So a huge mistake that we can make is to look up this word in the dictionary, right? Like, oh, what is love? Well, let me just whip out Webster's, right? And we'll just define this, right? And, and think that we're getting the right ideas to what Paul is talking about here because what we'll find is love described in cultural terms. You'll find passion, affection, or feelings. So what is love? Well, in Scripture... Love is always defined in terms of actions. Always. Specifically, the action of the God who is love. And Paul and the authors of Scripture, for them, love had been defined by the story of God. The Hebrew word that we often translate as love in our Bibles is the word, you guys should probably know this word by now. Anybody? Everybody? What is this word? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go Hebrew. What is this word? Hesed. There it is. Beautiful. Hesed. And Hesed is actually a reference to covenantal love. It's often defined in this depending, uh, defined like this depending on your biblical translation. It could be defined as unfailing love. Just think about that idea for a minute. Unfailing love. Steadfast love. 
or simply faithfulness. Faithfulness is the reoccurring theme that comes up when we're talking about this word hesed. It's, it's very interesting, and I think most of us, who, who read through Genesis? Who at least got through Genesis this year? All right, people. Who made it through Ezekiel? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, I have a big confession right now. Ready? I skipped Job, and I skipped Ezekiel. I've read them many times, but I was so far behind. And when I talk to some of you guys, you're like, I'm so far behind. I'm like, dude, it's cool. I skipped Job. I skipped Ezekiel. Just skip. Some of you, though, were way more faithful than I were and are continuing. Anyway, first mention of love in the Bible comes in the pages of Genesis. Do you guys remember what it is? Is it Adam and Eve? Is it Cain and his wife? Is it Noah and his family? No, it's none of these. Interesting. It's not in reference to marriage. It's not in reference to sex. It's not in reference to any of these things. This is what it is. Genesis 22. Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. When we think about love, the Bible uses the familial family tie to define love. That's really what it is. And I know, I mean, just in our culture, and not just in our culture, but also in the church, right? We, uh, the church is filled with broken marriages, right? Love that would culminate maybe in, in sexual desire and passion and, and have that element to it. But there's just a, it's a shipwreck. It's a, so many marriages devastated. And so many people, well, you know, I just had to move on, I, you know, and, I won't go into that this morning. There are nuances behind all that. But I think still what our culture has a deep, deep conviction about is you do not give up on your kids. You stick it out. There's even marriages that just stick together. Why? You do it for the kids, for America. You do it for the kids, right? You know, this, I mean, this is what we say, right? Well, you do it for the kids. And when we look at Scripture, I mean, that, that is the idea of love. It's a love between a father and a son, a son whom the father dearly, dearly loves, his only son. And this is the idea behind love in Scripture. It's an unfailing love, a love that will never give up because that is your person. That's your child. It really has nothing to do with our modern terms of falling in and out of love, or the way we feel about a certain person or thing, it has everything to do with commitment. I'll tell you, Evelyn has been a pill for like the last three months. You parent, If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And then like, she'll just do the most obnoxious thing and then just smile at me, and I'm like, you're Rhoda from, you know, The Bad Seed. Like, that's what this is, right? Any of you guys watch old movies? The Good Son, Macaulay Culkin. Gosh, you guys are old. Or young, I don't know what you are. Um, I don't know who I am. Um, but you know what? When my baby barfed last night three times, there I was. Cleaning her up, putting her in the shower, washing her hair, running my fingers through it, getting all the conditioner out, getting her warm, patting her down, taking care of her, putting her back on her bed, stripping her bed, right? Grace and I just doing all this, right? Why? Because she's our baby, she's our child doesn't matter how freaking annoying she is. 
how much she tests my patience, she's mine. And I'm there for her. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with deserving or earning. So when we talk about love in the Bible, it is commitment. It is covenantal commitment. Because God was committed to Israel, right? God committed himself, a covenant committal to the family of Abraham. It meant then that God was present to help. God was present to provide. God was present to save. God was present to heal. God was present to listen. God was present to answer. God's love was always described in action. And of course, Paul and the writers of the New Testament came to see the greatest act of God's covenant faithfulness in his saving, redeeming, serving, listening, sacrificing action through his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, it is the cross where this God of covenant faithfulness would show his unfailing love. How much does, how committed is God to us? Look at the cross. How much does God love us? How long will God stay and bear with us? Look at the cross. There he is. He hangs, suspended between heaven and earth. This is God's greatest act of his unfailing love and faithfulness to Israel and the rest of the world. And through this act of faithfulness, through this act of unfailing love, God would redeem, he would restore, he would conquer evil, he would bring resurrection, he would fulfill all the promises, even at cost of his own life. That's how much God loves the world. That's how much God loves Israel. That's how much God loves you. And that's how much God loves me. Unfailing love. John the Apostle defines love for us in his first epistle. He says, in this the love of God was made manifest, revealed among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Trimper Longman and David Garland in their um, commentary, the Expositor's Bible commentary, say this, certainly every expression in the Bible that refers to God's love shows God in action. In love, he sent his son to be our savior and redeemer. Likewise, then, Christian love for others is a love that will engage in loving acts, acts of kindness, acts of tenderness, acts of compassion, acts of protection, acts of perseverance, and so on. So that brings us back to what Paul is saying here. Love one another sincerely or genuinely. This is the kind of love that Paul is calling Christians into. It is, excuse me, an active love. It is a tough love, a covenantal unfailing love that our modern definitions of love cannot hold a candle to. Now, I want you to do something. Let's look at verse 9. Let's, maybe let's just read it again together. Paul says, let love be sincere or genuine, depending on your translation. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What, what, what what an interesting competitive spirit that Paul encourages in the church, right? If you're going to be competitive, do it in honoring one another. Beautiful. 
Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That word, we talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, that word is like shocking. Blow people's minds by the way that you respond when people do evil against you. Show them kindness, mercy, grace. So Paul's list here is, look at the range of love that Paul is calling Christians to. This is a love that is to be practiced, obviously, right? It's a love, it's love, not just, you know, like, well, you know, do, check this one off, right? Love your neighbor, and then, you know, check this, you know, love your kids. No, Paul is describing love as a way of life for God's people, and it's worked out in the most regular, mundane, in-and-out relationships of everyday life. The range is from love one another with a family love to if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. It spans the whole, all the opportunities. Love. That is Paul's answer. It's a love that overcomes evil by doing Good. Is that ever our answer to the problems in society? How are we going to take care of what's going on in this neighborhood or in that neighborhood or this social issue? Love one another fervently. Love one another with a familiar love. That usually isn't our answer to problems. That usually isn't our answer to evil. But this is the biblical answer. Love that overcomes evil by doing good. And that is a real love, right? That's a powerful love. But it is also a practical love. A love that is desperately needed every day in our fractured world of politics, sex, and power. Of course, this isn't the only place that Paul talks about this love as a way of life. We find Paul's probably most famous teaching on love in 1 Corinthians 13. Here... Most of our translations in English describe it in terms of what love is, but actually in the Greek, it's more in terms of action. So the first thing, love does patience. Love acts kindly is actually how the Greek would be translated. But Paul says love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It's not proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It isn't irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. Now let me just stop there. Feelings give up. Feelings lose faith. Feelings are not always hopeful. Feelings do not endure. But Paul says love does. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Now Paul talking to the church about spiritual gifts, because that's the context of this, right? They practice spiritual gifts. 
but they're missing this element of loving one another in word and deed. He says prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless eventually, but love will last forever. And now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, teleos, when teleosity comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things, and now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with teleosity, teleos clarity? I guess it doesn't translate. Perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. These three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We've probably all heard that before, and it it is, it's inspiring, right? We, and most times the context of this is a wedding. And it's always interesting to me because usually we use that and then the bride and the groom turn to one another and they express how they feel about one another in that moment. How I feel. You look beautiful. Now, we'll give it 50 years, buddy. Like, do you still love her? <laughs> you know? I feel great about you now. We'll give it five months. How do you feel? Right? And the interesting thing is that we quote Paul what love does, and then we go, here's all my feelings about you right now. And so something that I like to do in the ceremonies that I perform is talk about that we are pledging, pledging to one another, not how we feel right now, but we are pledging faithfulness to the end. That's what marriage is about, covenant faithfulness. And this description of love is one of the most famous statements in all the world, right? We hear it at Christian weddings and non-Christian weddings about what love is and what love does. And this statement is about deep love, about true love. It's a fantastic statement. It's so inspiring to hear. But, but, to think that any of us can just step into this and do this kind of love automatically We're just wrong in our thinking. That that's what Paul is just like, oh, just turn it on, right? We can't step into this way of thinking and living and stay there effortlessly. This is a love that must be practiced, as I said. And I think that's why Paul gives us this list, because it's a love that must be practiced in, again, the most mundane, everyday circumstances. And that's what Paul is doing here showing us how love works out every day in seemingly small and insignificant ways in committed relationships to one another. That's how our character, or that's how virtue is formed. When we, when we think about, you know, you often think about Paul's command to husbands, and we use this at wedding ceremonies as well. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. I have no doubt that in that moment, each man that stands there before his wife and before this, you know, company of witnesses would take a bullet for his wife. And kind of like, that's usually what we think. Like, oh, I give the world for you. Will you wake up early for your wife and set her up for her hard day? 
Will you shut your mouth and listen to her for a second? I mean, truly, this is what love does. And we were like, oh, you know, like we want to be like these like big drama queens, you know, like the hero of the story and think that, oh, I'd lay down my life in this great act. Yes, but that's actually, Jesus did that, so you don't have to, praise God, right? (laughs) And you're not the hero of the story, he is. And what he is asking you to do is actually something that is, is exceedingly difficult, but is to lay down your life in the most seemingly insignificant ways each and every day. That's it by preferring her over yourself, by crucifying this me first, my needs, and putting her first and her needs first. That is love. That's how it works. And as we practice this, our character is formed. This is how all character is formed. So if you will, the kind of love that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13 is marathon love. Can we define it that way? It's marathon love. You can't just do it. You can't just jump into it and think like, oh, love is patient. Love, this is just who I am. No, we got to go back to Romans chapter 12 and get in the gym and train for 1 Corinthians 13 so that this will become a way of living for us, a way of life so that we become love. So that when you are placed in a situation where maybe at this moment you would say, I couldn't love that person. I could never, ever, ever forgive a thing like that. In fact, that is exactly what you will do. Because you have first been living your life with the knowledge that you have been supremely loved and sacrificed for by God. Not just that God is fond of you and has warm feelings for you, but that he gave the most valuable thing in all of the cosmos in order to redeem you and make you his child. He gave you his son, Jesus, to a horrific, bloody death on a cross that you might be forgiven and given new life, a new and bright future in his kingdom. And secondly, You have been practicing this love of God for you by loving others. Every day, putting others before yourself, practicing patience, letting go of control, doing kindness, forgiving and letting go of small, irritable things that human beings just do, right? Amen? Thank you. There we go. Get a Pentecostal in here. (laughs) Believing the best about others. As Paul says, hoping and working for their good and blessing. We practice these things, these and a hundred other small ways. We work hand in hand with the Spirit to walk in the newness of life. This is how love transforms us. This is what transformative love looks like. Love that transforms us into the image of our Father in heaven, as the Sermon on the Mount so beautifully puts it, who loves all liberally and indiscriminately. He causes his blessings. Jesus uses a picture of rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, what what an incredible goal and picture that we would love people, we would serve people, that we would be kind and gracious with people, and it doesn't matter what their, like what they do, what their response is. Years ago, I used to work at Starbucks. Yeah, I know. Most of us did, right? Yeah. 
at one point in time, orange mocha frappuccino. Uh, I could still make that thing in my sleep. Um, and I remember I, I, had, I, was a, um, I was a manager there, and so many times I've been training people and working with them, and they'd come in you know, to work, and they're all peppy and ready to go, and then some jerk would come in that's just having, like, just, I'm having a horrible day, and I, my goal today is to ruin everybody else's day, right? You, you probably have those customers as well in your life. And I just remember just watching the baristas that I was working with just be so deflated, and it was just ruin their day. And so I just implemented this principle of love with them. Like, do just as much as depends on you, you just love this person. You just serve this person. Don't let this person's horrible life ruin your day. Like, there's no reason. Like, just love them. Just be gracious to them and get them out as fast as possible, right? You know? <laughs> but really, I mean, this does work, and it ends up transforming our being. But, I mean, what an incredible vision to love in that way. That it doesn't matter what people do. You just love people because that's who you are, because you have been practicing it again and again and again with people that are easy to love, people that are difficult to love, situations that you just kind of fall into it and it works, and other situations where you got to work it out and you got to remind yourself of what God and Christ has done for you. You got to remind yourself of the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to remind yourself of the presence of God presently to work in you, right? But what an incredible vision, transformative love. And again, this is a tough love. And in fact, I would argue that there is nothing tougher in all the world. Now, unfortunately, many times in the church, even our songs can kind of fall in line with what the culture thinks and feels about love. And so we have these, you know, type of category of songs. I call them Jesus is my boyfriend songs. You probably do too, right? And all the songs are about how God feels about me and how I feel about God. But that's not the way the Bible defines it. I love what Mark Sayer says in his book, Strange Days. He says, the spirit of God leads not just to joy and praise, but also love. Not the soppy, soapy reduction, recycled greeting cards, and made-for-television romances, but the blood and guts love that emerges from Calvary's tree. The self-denying love that crosses the borders and barriers that our world erects against God and others. Transformative love tears down those barriers that our culture says, other foreigner, Democrat, Republican, gay, straight, queer, any of that. This love tears that down. Transformative love. I love you because God in Christ has loved me. He pursued me when I was, I was lost. I was a rebel. I was far, far away, but Jesus brought me near. That's the indiscriminate love of God, and he's calling us into that as well. Gosh, guys, there is a world out there that thinks that God hates them. There is a world out there that thinks that God is discriminatory in his love. But I tell you, God is not. He is not. And it does not matter, truly, if you are gay, if you are straight, if you are a murderer, if you're an adulterer, if you are a thief, what you are, with the big sins, the small sins, you're proud, you're an abuser, it doesn't matter who you are, you are welcomed by God through Jesus Christ to the table of the Lord, and we'll take care of all of that eventually. That's the invitation, right? 
And again, we're going back to Paul's inclusive and exclusive gospel. The indiscriminate love of God. And as we have been purchased by Jesus Christ, God invites us into this transformation of indiscriminate love. Transforming love. Just a few more things and then we're done. Let me just say this. Paul, uh, Paul, John, John Paul, Pope John Paul. Just keep going. I don't know. I'm not going to quote John Paul II, sorry. Uh, John, the apostle. Remember those words that he says? Behold, the kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Another translation says, where in the world does this kind of love come from? Or look at this out of this world kind of love. Before Jesus Christ, outside of the scriptures, you cannot find this kind of love that we would be invited to be part of the family of God. That we would be invited to share his image. That we'd be be invited to rule and reign with Christ in an everlasting kingdom. What kind of love is this? Now, of course, there is nothing powerful, life-changing, or out of this world about loving, serving, giving, and forgiving people who are like you or people that love you. And that is not the love of God. Anyone can do that. But the out-of-this-world, transformative, life-changing love of God loves the other. Fill in the blank. Gives and forgives. Blesses and prays for even their enemies. I'm missing the last page. There it is. I thought I was missing the last pages. Found them. Michael Gorman wrote a small book called Reading Paul. I I highly recommend this to anybody who's interested in really understanding Paul's theology. But listen to this. This is powerful. Paul's call to love is an alternative not only to the blatant violence that dominates human relations, but also also to the manipulative gift-giving And I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine mentality that permeates many human cultures. It goes on. This law of Christ forbids activity in the name of God that does not correspond to the divine graciousness displayed in the faithful and loving death of Jesus. And it requires an ongoing individual and communal discernment of how to actualize the love of God in creative but faithful ways. Those in Christ must keep in step with the Spirit, learning how the Spirit continues to empower the faithful in a life that corresponds to the reconciling, redeeming love of God in Christ. The love that is both giving and forgiving. Reconciled and redeemed, the community reincarnates the canonic Cruciform love of God, 
not only within itself, but also in the world as a foretaste of the final salvation to come. Michael Gorman, be my pastor. Gosh. So listen to that just one more time. This law of Christ forbids activity in the name of God that does not correspond to the divine graciousness displayed in the faithful and loving death of Jesus. So what's he saying? All of our love, all of our action and love must be out of the love of the cross, the love that was displayed for us in the death of Jesus. But that also takes not just us individually, but communally working that out, stirring one another up, reminding one another, this is the brother, this is the sister who Christ died for. Christ died for the world. We have to do this together. And as we've been talking about through the last few weeks, Learn together to discern what God is doing in our midst. Discerning together how the love of God is to be made manifest here in this body of believers. Discerning together how the love of God is to be made manifest in our community at large. When we do this, we take the story of God forward in our own time and our generation, and we write with God. The next chapters in the story of God in the world. Transformative love. That's it. I mean, gosh, you go from Genesis to Revelation. This is God's big idea. This is the vision of Scripture. That we would be reborn and transformed into the image of the God who is love. So that we love one another here in this community indiscriminately not based upon, you know, outward or inward likeness or dislikes, and that we love the world around us with that same indiscriminative love. Practice this transformative love, church. It will transform you. It will transform me to be loved, to love like God loves, and it will put the tough, transformative love of God on display for the world to see. I'll close with this. I got a, I got a quote in T. Wright, right? Come on. In T. Wright says this, love is the language they speak in God's world. Whew. I mean, that alone. Mic drop, close the books, pray. But, he says, and we are summoned to learn it. Now, for the day when God's world and ours will be brought together forever. We know that's the end of the story. Heaven and earth being one again. God's world and our world colliding together. It is the music they make in God's course. And we are invited to learn it and practice it now in advance. For what we will be. For what's coming. And then he says this. Dang, man, love is not a duty or even our highest duty. It is our destiny. Look out, Star Wars. Love is our destiny. This is what God has redeemed us for, to partake in his love, the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the love of the Spirit, to join in that dance of love, to become love, and to love the world, to love one another in that same way that God has loved us. Lord Jesus,
Lord, bring us back. Lord, bring us back, Lord, to where we were, Lord, when you found us. Lord, we were far away from you. But we have been brought near by the precious blood of Christ. We have been supremely loved and sacrificed for. So bring us back, Lord. And may I pray, even now, Holy Spirit, that we would experience afresh and anew the love of God being poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are talking about a love that is action. I pray, Lord, that we would know, Lord, that the act of the cross, the act of the resurrection, the act of the ascension, the act of the giving of the Spirit were for us. And that that great love that is displayed in the career of Jesus, the knowledge of that love would be poured into our hearts. Like Paul prays that we would know the height, the depth, the width, and the length, that we would know and experience the love of God which surpasses knowledge. That we would know it was for us. And Lord, that that love would break, or it would overflow the banks of our hearts, and it would begin to work itself out in the most practical and mundane ways of our lives. From roommates, to spouse, to children, to neighbors, employers and employees, all the way to our enemies, that we would be transformed by your great said love. Do that in us, Lord. And Lord, let us see what it looks like when there is a community that is overflowing with the love of God. Let us see what it looks like when the banks of refuge overflow and begin to leak out on the community around us. And people are touched by this great love of God and they are brought to the table of the Lord. Do that, Lord, in our day, in our generation. Lord, write with us this new chapter. Lord, we give this year to you. We pray, Lord, that it would bear much fruit as we have spent a year rooted in your word, taking in again and again and again the story of your great love. Lord, would it bear fruit into this next year of 2020, we pray. Amen.